0: Hello, how's everybody doing? My name is Christian Wagner, and I'm the militant Thomist. So today we're going to be doing a little bit of Q and A. So answering questions on anything and everything doesn't even have to be theology related. I'll answer it on whatever you need. If you need life advice? I'll answer it. I'll become your militant thoma, militant therapist, militant life coach. Okay, let me see. Before we begin, I got a few things to tell you about. If you go in down there in the links below, uh, the first thing you're going to see is FluentGreekNT.com, and that is for learning Greek. If you need to learn Greek and you want to, to learn it the best way, then go to FluentGreekNT.com and use the code militant for 20% off. Everybody always asks me about the music. You see those two links down there? Those are the music links. And then below that, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash militantomist. I really appreciate it if you do. Or you can get a direct donation down there. And then also a bunch of links for social media, including the Discord, which the Discord, very important. You should join it. And then there's a bunch of other links. And finally, at the bottom, mug, the most important link down there, along with the bookshop where you can buy some books okay let's see what's going on so actually before we begin i just wanted to uh share how much i love the manuals i've been uh i've been collecting a list for myself man this chair is so creaky i hate it it's the worst i've been collecting a list of all of the manuals that i have uh come across and there's a bunch of them but it's so interesting like You can find a manual for literally anything. You have everything from like six volume, insane, um, insanely detailed scholastic manuals that like just just that just that manual is better scholarship than literally the entire like Eastern Orthodox and Protestants combined have ever produced intellectually in their intellectual tradition. Everything from something like that to tiny like Copin's Systematic Study the Christian Religion 300 page like punches that are still an amazing manual that covers all of theology. And then there's also like three volume like manuals of metaphysics, just three volumes just on metaphysics. And then you have tiny little like 70 page uh, philosophical manuals that will give you like nice bites, but it's still like. In the manual format, you have manuals on spiritual, you have mystical manuals that are done that I can think of. You have manuals on English rhetoric. You have manuals on uh, oration. You have manuals like, I'm telling you, this is just the English stuff that I've come across. And this is just everything I've come across. You have have manuals on economics, Catholic economics that are out there. And the the sad thing is like two-thirds to three-quarters of these manuals are out of print. It's just so very sad, so very sad. You have all of these of print manuals. So uh, yeah, I've been I've been looking through them, just seeing all the all the things that I'm gonna print. It's just insane what we've lost. But trust me, I'll bring it back eventually. What I want to do is I want to write like a guide for anybody who wants to kind of jump into the to the manualist tradition and to um where to start where to go easiest hardest everything like that all the weird stuff that you can find manuals on because I'm telling you there's some like really really I, I need to look at my list to see what probably the probably the weirdest one is the one by copens that I found there's like a dozen manuals on apologetics that are, seem pretty good there's a manual just on the cardinal virtues for young men um bunch of manuals of moral theology. The weirdest one though, let me see if I can find it. Yes, it's the practical introduction to English rhetoric. Like that's such a weird thing to have a manual on English rhetoric, but go off. Um, question, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. I got to bed early last night, which early means, well, I guess this morning. Early means Five AM is probably when I went to bed. Then I woke up at about one. So that's a that's a good amount of sleep that I got. I went and I was uh I gun shopped a little bit earlier. I was going gun shopping. And then I started making my uh my my outline of every single manual I could possibly find. You know what I should do? I should do a continuing competition where if you find a manual that I've never heard of in English, then I'll give you a free book or something like that. I think that'd be pretty good. Okay, could the title of mother that Mary has be derived solely from her being the new Eve, Eve being the mother of all humans and Mary of all believers? Uh, Yes, so mother, um, when we reference the divine maternity of Our Lady, it's kind of twofold. Is that in one sense, uh, we are talking about uh, the Theotokos, mother of God, Mater Dei. Uh, We're referencing her uh, mothership of our Lord. And then, in consequence of that, we can also reference um, mothership being the mothership of the church because of her function. Um, because the, the the mothership, in that sense, uh, the, uh, classically the, um, the locus classicus for proving that is in um, is at the at the cross where um, John is said to be. Uh, well, Our Lady is given to John and then John is given to Our Lady and then uh, behold thy mother That that is that is seen as the handing over of of John and then John in the person of the entire church to Our Lady um, for maternal care, some of the same maternal care which was given to our Lord. So, yes, um, now that's connection to the new Eve, that would be a, a proper connection. Um, I don't think the earliest references to Our Lady as the new Eve is going to bring up her role as the mother of the faithful. Um, I I think it's more of uh, uh, like secundum quid. Um, It's going to be like she is she is the mother of of our Lord. And therefore, by consequence, she is said to be the mother of of um, the new life in Christ. So what is the supreme good of man? Well, obviously it's God. So easy peasy. So what inheres in the Jesuit order that makes them so dang genius? I honestly, I think it is the the pedagogical tradition of the Jesuits. So the Dominicans, while they they are obviously an educational order, the Dominicans really specialized in theological education um, throughout their life. And at least they, in theory, they were supposed to be uh, focused on the defeat of heresy, which I mean, uh, they, there are examples of that. But the Jesuits have done a lot more um, concerning that. So with the Jesuits, they were more generally educational. So you would have like, let's say you had a Catholic university and you needed a um, science professor you would have a Jesuit who already had a doctorate in theology and canon law and philosophy and like, you know, like 10 different doctorates. And then he would also on top of all of those doctorates in philosophy and canon law and theology and all, all of, all of the graduate training that he's had in theology to be a priest, they would also um, send him to do graduate work in, in science. So because of their role as the, uh, in, in secular education, um, that is why they uh, they they're just so so insane. At least um, they used to be so amazing when it comes to that. But yeah, just part of the Jesuit charism when it comes to the fact that they are an educational order. So, have you ever uh, have you considered becoming a Dominican? Um, well, yes, but. Uh, that that that's kind of closed for me. So (laughs) Um, yeah, I am married. So at least at least not a first order Dominican, I could I could become a Dominican tertiary. And I have considered that I need to talk to Calder a little bit more about that. Um, Because there is the obligation to uh, and I mean, I, 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 I'm notoriously a fan of I'm, I'm a big fan of the liturgy of the hours of the divine office. I'm a huge fan of it, but being obliged um, to pray. So like now, if it's like, ah, I kind of, kind of like have to do something or like ran out of time and I missed my hour. Yeah, whatever. Um, Like, obviously it's, uh, it's not good, but it's, it's not, it's not the biggest deal in the world. But if you're, if you're canonically obliged to do something and you don't do it, then, uh, then that's a much bigger deal. And I have a much stronger obligation towards it. So, so there's, there's a lot of considerations when it comes to becoming a tertiary. So yeah, first order, uh, that door is, that route is close to me, but third order, um, yeah, I've considered it. Okay. So this is an interesting comment. I love, I love, uh, showing people this because a lot of people, uh, the, so um, is Elizabeth's reference to Mary as mother of our Lord in Luke one, a good defense of her title as mother of God. So I think honestly, um, this, this is not directly related to your question, John Fisher, but honestly, Luke one is the best um, defense of our Lord's divinity in sacred scripture. I'm trying to find Reems. reams. There we go. Luke one. Luke one is going to be the absolute best. So we see. There you go. Do we have a version? I want to read just the. Okay. Maybe I'll have to use a different version. I need to find one that like marks out the old. Because I want to read in Luke one. All of the Old Testament prophecies and see if you guys notice something. This is kind of annoying. Maybe maybe I'll have to go over to KJV. <clears throat> I am ordinariate, so it's patrimonial. Dang, I am not finding a version which shows Old Testament references. This is kind of annoying do you know they'll have the versions where the all the old testament references are like in italics or something if one of you could find that for me i am like very very annoyed right now that i can't find that okay maybe this one will Let me see. Okay. You know what? I'll just I'll just shoot off the hip and then just try to find a few examples. That's annoying that I can't read all of them. And whatever. It's whatever. This is live. So okay, I'll share my screen. So if you go through Luke One and then just try to pick out some of the Old Testament prophecies that are going on in Luke one. Actually, I know what I'll do. So let's see, let's see how Lord is being used in this context. So first one is in verse six and they were both just before God, walking in all the commandments and justifications of the Lord without blame. Okay. Now in verse nine, according to the custom of the priestly office, it was his lot to offer incense going into the temple of the Lord. Verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And then here is from, here's in verse 15. For he shall be great before the Lord, and shall drink no wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. Verse 16. And he shall convert many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Verse 17. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias, that he may turn the hearts of the fathers unto the children, and the incredulous to the wisdom of the just, to repair unto the Lord a perfect people. Okay, verse 25. Thus hath the Lord dealt with me the days wherein he hath had regard to take away my reproach among men, Verse 28, And the angel being come in, said unto her, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou amongst women. Verse 32, He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of David his father, and he shall reign in the house of Jacob forever. Okay, verse 38, And Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it done unto me according to thy word, and the angel departed from her. And whence is this to me that the mother of my Lord shall come to me? Okay, notice this is the first instance in verse forty-three, where this is. In all of the previous instances, Lord is clearly referring to, um, referring to God. This is the first instance in which it is quote questionable. Now, modern modern scholars are going to say no, no, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, they're like no, no lord is actually just like a general statement of like uh, some sort of ruler but you see looking throughout luke one in every single one of these usages it's clearly taking from old testament language and it is clearly referring to the god of israel when it when it says lord now look our lady the mother of our lord that's interesting why would in this context lord all of a sudden switch to being um, not God, but some mere um, honorific title. And then look in verse 45. Blessed art thou that thou hast believed, because those things shall be accomplished that were spoken of thee by the Lord. Mary said, my soul doth magnify the Lord. Verse 58. And her neighbors and kingsfolk heard that the Lord. Verse 66. For the hand of the Lord was with him. Verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Verse 76, and thou, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. Now, let's, I think it might be in verse, let's look in chapter 2. It's going to, the same exact thing is going to happen. Except in chapter 2, uh, behold the angel of the Lord. And now notice. In verse 11. Because in Luke 2, this is when you get it in this same exact context. Notice I'm not trying to play any Jesuit tricks on you. Same exact context. This is Luke 2. I'm just looking at all the examples of Lord in the in the context of these statements. For this day is born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then verse 15. Let us go over Beth, to Bethlehem and let us see this word that has come to pass, which the Lord hath showed to us. Notice, Lord here referring to the God of Israel. Uh, present him to the Lord in verse twenty two and verse twenty three, it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male opening the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, verse twenty four, and offer a sacrifice according as it is written in the law of the Lord. And then notice verse twenty six, same exact context, no Jesuit tricks going on here. And he had received an answer from the Holy Ghost that he shall that he should not see death before he had seen the Christ of the Lord. Okay, now verse 29, now thou dost dismiss thy servant, O Lord, according to thy word in peace. Verse 38, now she at the same hour coming in confessed to the Lord. Verse 39, law of the Lord. Notice, all, all of these usages of Lord are clearly referring to a divine um, title. And interchangeably, in context, Lord is being both used of... Um, In in the Old Testament sense, like the law of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, and then certain Old Testament prophecies, which use the word Lord. And these are clearly being spoken of, of Christ. So I think, honestly, uh, looking through just a clear reading of Luke 1 and 2, you're going to find some of the best uh, apologetic texts um, in support of the divinity of our Lord. So this also comes in with um, the the, um, divine mothership of Our Lady, too. Okay, what's your opinion on pop Catholic apologists like Trent Horn, Jimmy Akin, and Catholic Answers as a whole? Yikes! Oh, <laughs> um, should I? How should I answer this? Should I answer this? I don't know. Dende's not here, so he's not here to tell me not to. Okay. Um, when it comes to them, there's there's two comments uh, to make. Oh, Lexi is uh, currently visiting us right now. She's putting away socks. Okay, there's two things to say about them. With The, the first is that they're very effective when it comes to the audience they're seeking. So they're not seeking, um, when they do apologetics, to appeal to certain groups of Protestants. Uh, for example, Lutherans. Your average... Um, catholic answers listener the average audience member that they're envisioning as catholic answers isn't a confessional lutheran layman that's not who they're or or somebody in the opc um or or, or whatever that's not who catholic answers or jimmy aiken or uh, trent horn that's not who they're directed towards now the second thing to say is that there is bad scholarship on some things they say some of them are uh um, just straight up falsehoods so you need to keep those two things in mind and distinguish properly because some things they're being um they're being simple because they're they're just speaking to a certain group that is going to uh believe a certain thing for example if we say um that our lady is not just like some normal super sinful lady obviously confessional lutherans Um, are going to agree or, um, or other groups of classical Protestants are going to agree. Like, yeah, like our lady isn't just like, um, just just worthless. Like let's not even focus on her. Like, yeah, yeah. But generally speaking, uh, 95% of Protestants are going to, are going to believe that, uh, that's a very common view. So that's who, that's, that's who they are arguing against or the fact that the Eucharist is more than a symbol. Uh, they're, they're 90, 95% plus, probably even more than that. Um, are going to believe in sacramental symbolism. So uh, that's what they're going to argue against. They're going to say Protestants believe this. Protestants believe X. And that's fine to use that sort of language. But on the other hand, uh, in that second category, there are some statements which are just uh, straight up false. Um, And this especially comes through with some of their writing on the canon. Is that there were certainly um, medieval Latin theologians who disagreed on the canon that's uh uncontroversial for anybody who who does any sort of serious scholarship um on medieval beliefs about the canon or anybody that's just uh, literate in medieval theology they'll run across for example Hugh of St. Victor who isn't going to include them in his canon um or they'll hear the story of Cardinal Cajetan who didn't include him in his canon so yeah it was it was a common view to disagree on the canon and um uh, yeah. So, so there's, there's, there's two categories of things that we need to uh, distinguish, but yeah, obviously um, they have much wider reach than any of us could ever dream of, but there are some problematic things about them, but we need to distinguish properly uh, their, their intended audience. So, yeah, but when it comes to specifically, uh, I guess I'll get even spicier Um Trent Horn, I really like Trent Horn actually. Um I'm I'm actually I mean uh, the only thing that gets me really uh riled up and annoyed is his stuff about like McCalvinism. I just think that's really annoying. Um that's the that's the only only critique I would have of of him. Um some some other things, uh, minor things I'll I'll kind of cringe at, but uh yeah, Trent Horn's fine. When it comes to Jimmy Akin, there is clear um uh, systemic, pro- uh, systemic's not the right word, but um, there are clear. Uh, let me think of how to phrase this. Uh, there are clear patterns of of error and issues uh, with him, such as, for example, um, the his, his article on uh, Gamaliel. Um, he said that it was anti-Semitic. Um, a a denial. It seems like he uh, leans towards two covenant. Um, It seems that uh, he's a little too light when it comes to uh, the way in which the church views Protestants. Um, It seems uh, like he is the sort of sola ecclesia mindset that um, going back to the sources of theology and doing the hard work um, isn't, isn't um, important. And it's just like, if the, if the Pope has one of his uh, bathroom sort of uh, like airplane sort of comments, those those things are s- suddenly ex cathedra because it's it's funny uh, watching the debate between him and Gideon. You'll see him quoting like, oh, the magisterium, this magisterium, that when it comes to um, leaning towards theistic evolution. But if you actually look at the magisterial sources that he was citing it's like a the speech from one of the popes to the academy of sciences. Like yeah, that's like magisterially like down like below the floor, down here. That that's the level of magisterial authority that a, a random speech to the academy of sciences has. It's um it it's just it could even be like the personal theological opinion of the pope. Um he's not really uh speaking in his official role at all. So, uh, yeah, that's a very worrying trend. Um, and then also the other uh, worrying trend is um, the clear epistemological skepticism that's present. And then a, then a few other things. Um, that needs just cringe overall. Uh, I think we can all agree um, with Jimmy Aiken being cringe. Um, it, it's, it's just very cringe, man. Which isn't necessarily a bad thing. There's some pretty cool cringe people. But, uh, cool as in like good people um, who are cringe. But it's just like, uh, it's unsufferable. Okay, so did I, oh, my headphone cord was called on something. What is your opinion on Mary being co-redemptrix and being mediatrix of all graces? What biblical evidence can one use to defend these titles? Okay, so both of these titles, so with co-redemptrix and with mediatrix of all graces, these are going to be what's called um, theological conclusions. So uh, just just to uh, kind of lay the foundation. So the way in which theology is done is... We have the uh, biblical text as interpreted um, by the general theological tradition of interpretation. So um, so the, the traditional readings of sacred scripture. So that's going to be uh, where, where we go with, uh, with dis- not, not really discovering, but asserting the dogmas of the faith which are preached by the church and systematizing them so we can have um things that are directly in the deposit of faith and explicitly in the deposit of faith so these are going to be things like um i don't know uh the trinity or the incarnation those are things which are um you you can just go uh the word was made flesh okay yeah that's the incarnation now other things are going to be uh theological conclusions so this is going to be something like um Let me think the fact that there is the loss of vision in purgatory. So the fact that there is the loss of vision in purgatory, which is one of the the pains of purgatory. That is going to be a theological conclusion that comes from a few principles, Um, thinking about the nature of the beatific vision and then combining that with the nature of purgatory. Then we come to the conclusion that, okay, these things are going to be mutually exclusive and somebody in purgatory is going to have this loss of the beatific vision. That's going to be something which is concluded, but you don't have Paul in like, I don't know, 3rd Corinthians writing a chapter about the loss of loss of vision purgatory. That's going to be a conclusion. Um, That's going to be in the realm of what we call uh, systematic theology or scholastic theology, uh, broadly speaking, because it's something which is less direct and virtually contained uh, rather than being explicitly uh, contained. Now, when it comes to co-redemptrix, so co-redemptrix really is going to refer to Mary's um, supreme role um, in, in bringing about uh, next to and obviously uh, lesser than our Lord, uh, Lord our, our Lord is the is that instrument of salvation for the world. But the instrument of salvation for the world is going to use himself other instruments. So our Lord didn't just I mean, if he just snapped and said, OK, everybody's um, everybody saved. Uh, he, he could have done that by the very um, the fact of his omnipotence. But he used certain instruments. So, for example, he'll use uh, preachers to bring the gospel. Those are examples of instruments of salvation. And in that sense, we become uh, co-redeemers. So we are are all, in a sense, uh, co-redeemers. When I I pray uh, for the salvation of a friend's soul, I am participating in the act of redemption um, of our Lord. Because our Lord uses instruments. Now, with Our Lady... Being the one who has given our Lord His flesh, um, He has given, uh, she has given our Lord um, His body and nurtured and raised Him. She takes a supreme role um, next to our Lord at, um, as being an instrument um, for the salvation uh, of the world. So, in that sense, she is called the co-redemptrix when it comes to uh, the objective um, winning of graces. But again, um, it's, it's something where she is supreme um, among among men, in um, men speaking, generally, um, not specifically uh, male humans. But among men, she takes a supreme role um, in being a co-redemption, uh, being a co-redeemer. Now, with the mediatrics of all graces, um, that can be spoken of in both um, either an objective sense or a subjective sense. Now, mediatrix in the objective sense, so the that winning of graces, which we talked about, that would be uh, more so co-redemptrix. Um, it's basically the same thing. Uh, when we talk about the objective sense of being a mediatrix. So um, the, the, the bringing about of the winning of graces. Now, when it comes to the second sense, it's going to um, come in with the subjective application of graces, and um, that is going to be um, a theological conclusion, of, um, of our, our lady's role as uh, being, uh, well, first the fact of prayers of the saints and then the fact of our lady um, being the mother of the church in, um, in our Lord being our older brother and then our lady being um, uh, the mother of our Lord so as she is our mother. So um, she takes the supreme role um, in the In also uh, being, she takes a supreme role when it comes to the application of graces in a similar sense of the bringing about of graces. So notice um, when it comes to the subjective application of graces, we are also going to have co-mediators too. Um, Not only the uh, objective winning of graces, which is going to be referred to um, the co-redemptrix. So those will be examples of um, when you have, I don't know, a uh, a priest. A priest is going to be, um, in in a certain sense, a mediator of grace. Uh, When you have... uh, I, I don't know. A book, a book is technically a mediator of of, of grace too. If, you, if you're reading it through the through the author who is writing the book, um, so so also he is participating in mediating grace because grace isn't something which is esoteric. It's going to be something uh, which is concretely mediated through the sacraments. Even um, even even Protestants are going to are going to agree with this. Like when it comes to meditational scripture, um, yeah, the the authors of the biblical text. And the very uh, words on the page, and I guess even the printer of the book is going to take a place when it comes to um, mediating uh, grace to the person. So uh, in, a, in a similar way, um, Our Lady, when it comes to the subjective application in her role of mother of the church, and uh, when, when it comes to her intercession on behalf of all believers, um, she is going to take that role of mediatrix. So I, I, hope that, I hope that helps because I feel like once one understands uh, what we mean by those terms and then also some uh, biblical principles when it comes to the way in which grace works um, with the objective um, redeeming, which um, we participate in, and then also the subjective application, which we also participate in, and then our lady's role among Christians as uh, the first among Christians. Okay, so in Charles Copin's systematic study of the Catholic religion, page one o seven, he defines person as an individual substance which is a principle of action in a rational nature. What is a principle of action? So, um, principle can be spoken of um, in multiple ways. So there can be first the uh, what's called the principium uh, quo, and there, then there's second the principium quo. So there's the principle. Uh, which, and then the principle by which. So let's say I decided to build a house. Let's say I decided to build a house. Now, the principle by which I build a house might be a um, team of laborers, which are going to build a house with me. It might be the hammer that I use to hammer and nails. It might be many things. Those are the principles by which a certain uh, action is done. Um, and then there could be, um, other, uh, principles spoken of a very, um, it can be spoken of in a narrow sense or a broad sense, but I'll just keep it simple. And then there's also the principle, which, so, um, that, that origin, um, or cause of action, uh, when it comes to the principle, which, so when it comes to the building of the house, since I'm the one building the house, the principle, which, so that cause of which, uh, is going to be me. So I am the, that, that principle of action. So the hypostasis is going to be um, the, that, that principle or cause um, of, of action in a rational nature. So I hope that is, that is helpful. Um, if you need another section on this, if you go to um, thinking where Aquinas talks about this. So on the principles of nature, which isn't really a common one people read, unfortunately, And if you read just the principles of nature, it's a quick read. Um, It's a very quick read, actually. It's not too long or complicated. He's trying to teach um, dummies like myself about philosophy. So I'm going to quick send that. So on the principles of nature, if you read that, he's going to talk more about the way we use principle and cause. So I hope that will be helpful for you. Okay, do you wear the brown scapular? Do you intend to? No, I uh, I do not wear the brown scapular. And I don't really um, intend to. I've never, uh, never really uh, given it much of a thought, actually. I have a very um, divine office-based devotion with myself, which has its strengths. But uh, it also has its weaknesses um, in building particular devotions. Thoughts on the Carlist? What is the what is the Carlist? Am I just being dumb right now? Carlist. Oh, Carlism is a traditionalist and legitimist political movement in Spain aimed at establishing an alternative branch of the Bourbon dynasty. One descended from Don Carlos, uh, Count of Molina on the Spanish throne. Um, Carlism was a significant force in Spanish politics from 1833 until the end of the Francoist regime. Um, I mean... If Franco, if Father Franco, uh, if he supported it, then um, you best believe that I support it. Okay, so thoughts on language of saying Jesus is a human being. What are the proper usages of the word being? Is it more akin to substance or person? Okay, so being is a very interesting term because in metaphysics, uh, and you can read about this. Uh, you know, what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm actually not even gonna recommend that. Book. I'm gonna recommend one of the books I reprint on metaphysics. Let's see. If you want to know more about the way in which being is used, you can go to my website, and I'll show you the books too. Um, I think I'm sharing my screen, so. If you general metaphysics, and this is by Rickaby, this is a good one that's going to cover the way in which being is used. And then a brief textbook of mental philosophy that also has um, ontology. So brief actually brief textbook of mental philosophy. if you're a real beginner when it comes to this, this is going to be the one you're going to pick up. If you're more intermediate then uh, Rickaby's work is pretty good so um and then Thomas mug obviously shameless plug so with the uh with the word being it's not something which is uh defined uh properly since it is um since being is not a genus and the fact because the the reason being isn't a genus or or broadly speaking a category is because uh, you would need to have specific species of a genus with uh, what are called differentia, so differences. And if you have a difference from something which is being, then it's going to be um, – the, the difference can't be being itself. It's going to have to be non-being. And non-being is another word for nothing. So there's going to be uh, – the differences between the the, the species is going to be nothing, and therefore it collapses in, and like obviously uh, that's stupid. So uh, being is going to be something which is analogous among, among – um, all created things. So that being said, uh, so being cannot be defined because a definition requires genus and differentia. So it can only be really improperly described. So being um, improperly described is going to be, I guess you could say, kind of the um, the intersection of, of essence and existence, if you want to put it that way. That That's like a very a broad and improper, uh, easy description to think of, like the intersection of, Existence and essence. So now there's uh, there's there's two uh, types of being we can think about: is um, being um, ipsum, well, ipsum esse subsistence, so being subsisting in itself, and there's going to be esse um, ab so being um, in another. Uh, so being in another is going to be created being because we subsist in the um, in the one being of God, which is being subsisting in itself. So we subsist in another; God subsists in Himself. So we have this kind of like what what uh, what the normies would call a sacramental framework of of uh, being the way on uh, which our being and and God's being is going to relate to one another. So all of that being laid out uh, when it comes to being in that sense, there's, again, infinite being and finite being. So there's going to since substance is going to be a being uh, which subsists ab alio but it's going to, in our framework, subsist in itself, and accidents are going to subsist in another. It's very problematic to say that Jesus is not a human being, because that would be denying that Jesus would have a human nature. And it would affirm a certain uh, um, docetic view of our Lord, because um, if you're using being in that signification, and there's no human being, then there's not going to be substance and accidents of humanity, and therefore no body, no soul, um, and know uh, human nature at all but by human being most people are going to uh, be referencing to a certain um, hypostasis so that's fine if that's what you mean by that signification so um, what are your plans once you finish at davenant hall will you pursue a phd um i'm thinking so right now some of my thoughts of, of what to do is Davenant Hall does have, um, some connections, uh, with, with a few, um, PhD programs. So I'm thinking about maybe, um, after I finish at Davenant Hall doing a PhD, and then maybe I will, um, get into the ecclesiastical degree system and get my STB and then my STL. So I can have a licensure to teach. I think that would be, um, that'd be good. And actually, if I already have a PhD in theology, I wouldn't need to get an STB. I'd just get a um, an STL, which is a a, li- a license to teach. Then maybe a um, an STD, which is Sacrae Theologiae Doctore, which is um, kind of an unfortunate acronym. But yeah, so there's maybe um, just kind of, just kind of throwing around a few ideas. Just kind of thinking of uh, what to do. Okay, so the other Paul always coming in with the uh, the anti anti-Catholic propaganda. So how do you view the theory that Jesuit hyper-skeptical tactics in the Counter-Reformation helped ferment the enlightenment? I I don't think it's a good theory um, because if you really look at a lot of these works that people are going to point to, the fact of the matter is that these, were, um, these works were never released to the public. Why were they never released to the public you ask? Well, the reason they were never released to the public was because the um, before I would say about the 1950s, you had to submit every single work to uh, what was called the Inquisition. So, if you were a Catholic, um, it was pretty, pretty, not 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 super difficult, but you had to make sure your work uh, didn't have any error in it. So, you had to submit it to get an imprimatur. Um, to the work from the Inquisition in Rome. So a lot of these works um, that people point to um, from the Jesuits, Jesuit hyperskepticism, those works were actually struck down because Rome uh, recognized and told them, hey, this isn't proper philosophy, chill out. So that's what happened. Um, So I I don't necessarily buy the theory at all because uh, the magisterium knew um, and a lot of the theologians and philosophers knew. like when these wackos came out with uh, hyper skeptical works, um it, they got shut down uh, pretty quickly uh, because the philosophical and theological education of of basically every single priest is better than um, most professors nowadays uh, the 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 education was extremely rigorous and very good. so when you had when you had people who were, Coming out with works that were based on bad philosophy, they would get shut down pretty quick. Okay. What is the role of the census fidei, especially in light of erring bishops? What recourse do laity have and to what extent to legitimately resist and the duties to obedience? Okay, so good question. So it's a pretty common maxim throughout Throughout the tradition that, let me think. So the only the only thing in which a, an inferior can rebuke a superior about is the case of heresy. So when it comes to bad prudential decisions of your bishop, you listen to him. When it comes to um, stupid phrasing, uh, I guess you could say, of your bishop, you listen to him. When it comes to personal decisions you don't like, uh, you listen to him. But when it comes to heresy then you don't listen to him and you rebuke him. That's uh, it it's really as, as easy as that. And you have um, every canonical right in the world to um, take it up with his superiors and to eventually take it up um, to Rome um, if he is teaching heresy. And the, the annoying thing is, is that if you take it to Rome, they will do something. They will do something if you if your bishop is denying the incarnation, if your bishop has liturgical abuse, if your bishop is covering up um, abuse, if your bishop is uh, doing any of these things, you have every single um, canonical right to bring it to Rome. And the annoying thing is people just don't bring it to Rome because they don't think it will do anything. But Rome will do something. They will do something. As if it's a valid case, they will look into it. Okay, so besides St. Thomas, who is your favorite theologian-slash-philosopher-saint? Um... You said saints, and they have to be a theologian and a philosopher. So you really, uh... You're really uh, restricting it on me. They have to be a theologian, a philosopher, and a saint. Um... Would it be cheating? I actually Saint Bonaventure. Uh, I'm trying to think whether Bonaventure did any commentaries on Aristotle. Yeah, he did. He did. He did. Now that I think of it, yeah. So Saint Bonaventure, Um, Saint Bonaventure is really good. He's definitely really good. Actually, actually, no, 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 no. I switched my mind. Saint Albertus Magnus. Yes, yes. Even though he's a little bit more of a philosopher, but he's still an amazing deal. Saint Albertus Magnus was just was insanely good. And, you know, he outlived St. Thomas Aquinas. It's insane. St. Thomas Aquinas died in 1274 and Albertus Magnus died in um, 1280. Crazy. So. Is it proper to call St. Joseph father of God? It, is it, is it proper? So, um, it, it is unadvisable to use that language, but if that language, you mean that St. Joseph, um, is married to the mother of God and therefore takes the, um, paternal role over him, uh, because our Lord, uh, our Lord is God, and then according to His humanity, He is um, in a uh, paternal relationship with uh, with Saint Joseph. Then, yes, uh, would be proper to speak in that way. Although, would that be the most prudent language? Um, that's another question. But i I have not um, I have not seen that language used because of uh, the fact that. Usually, when we talk about the Father of God, well, we usually are talking about the first person of the Trinity. Okay, question. This is an interesting one. The Father is our Father. The Son is our Brother. Does the Holy Spirit have any title? Reflect a familiar connection to us like the Son and Father have? Yeah, yeah. He'd be our cousin. I'm joking. No. Um. Not. Not really. Uh. I can't think of any familial um, title for the Holy Spirit. If anybody can think of any, that would be pretty cool to think of. Can a Catholic politician be against laws prohibiting abortion, uh, genuinely personally pro-life, and still be in good um, standing with the church, even if that position is stupid? No, absolutely not. So this is what, what people get wrong. People... I want you to if, if you're gonna if you're gonna disagree anybody watching if they're going to disagree with me what I'm about to say read the propers for the Feast of Christ the King the the state owes submission to our Lord Jesus Christ and owes our Lord public worship that is something which is not optional and politicians, our Catholic laity of the Holy Catholic Church. So, in that position they're in, they also must um, give due reverence and submission to Christ the King, and they must bring all things under Christ in that position. So, if they are, th- th- this would be an analogous situation, and it's no different really. So, let's say you have a Catholic businessman. And he has terrible working conditions for his workers. He underpays them. He never gives them times off. He cheats, abuses, and steals. And he says, well, in my business life, I'm fine with abusing workers. I'm fine with cheating. I'm fine with stealing. I'm fine with all of these sins. But personally, you have to understand personally, in my religious and spiritual life, I am totally against cheating. I'm totally against stealing. I'm totally against all of these things. Everybody would call them out on it. And the church does call them out on it. And you know, the blue check marks call them out on it. The, the famous Catholics, they'll call them out on it. But when politicians do the same thing, it's seen as politics. They have no right to do that. They have no right to uncrown our Lord. He is king of governments, just as he is king of the church and king of businesses. So his kingship must reign, and everybody owes him both private and public worship, including states. Our Lord is the king of America, and we are merely in rebellion to him. That's all. Okay, so why are, maybe you as well, some internet Catholics so vehemently against democracy? To me, it doesn't seem the case that it is condemned by the church. You are correct. Uh, Pope Leo the XIII um, famously uh, did not condemn democracy. And I think it's in the encyclical Libertas where he uh, does say that... Um, States, And this has been uh, generally in the, in the Catholic philosophical tradition to say that aristocracy, uh, democracy and monarchy are all licit. Now, just because the church and the uh, philosophical uh, tradition um, of, of Catholicism has affirmed that all three forms are licit does not mean that uh, the church does not prefer a certain form. And the form is one that is mixed, one that is a monarchy with a certain mixture of democracy and aristocracy, as uh, you can see in De Regno, where St. Thomas teaches this, and then you can see in um, on the papacy, where St. Robert Bellarmine uh, teaches this. So those are two uh, pretty good sections. St. Robert Bellarmine uh, collects like everybody's opinion on this. It's great. Then he responds to all the objections of Calvin against this, but, 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 but. The reason that we are against democracy um, is because it is uh, really the worst of of all of the, even though it's licit, it is still the worst of um, forms of government, which is clear because um, there's a famous clip and I'm going to bring it up, which is going to, um, which is going to teach well on this issue. He really sums up all of the good arguments against democracy Just pull up real quick okay no. unmute that okay okay i have it Really sums up a lot of the good arguments against democracy because democracy basically means government by the people of the people for the people but the people are retarded okay that is why i'm against democracy Okay, was the birth of our Lord a normal birth? Did Mary suffer the pains of birthing and experience the consequences of such experience? So, Mary did not suffer the pains of birthing and the experience and experience the consequences of such experience um, because of the fact that pain and childbearing is one of the curses of the fall. And since she was uh, kept from the stain of original sin, uh, she did not experience the pain of of, of that. But a uh, a normal birth, um, it, it, de- it depends on what you mean by normal. I mean, um, there's some abnormal aspects to it because obviously um, the physical constitution of Our Lady was kept uncorrupt uh, from it. And there wasn't the pains of birthing from it. So, yeah. So it depends on what you mean by normal. So, could a Catholic read books of the Bible that belong to the various scriptural canons of the various Orthodox churches? What value do those books have officially, according to the Catholic Church? Um, I mean, yeah, you could read them, um, and they're approved for liturgical uses, in, use in their um, in those rites. So, uh, it's I think it's better, and I think this is uh, kind of getting into um, a bit of how how a lot of the early fathers are speaking about some of these other books is there are various books which are um there's books that are canonical there's books that are ecclesiastical and there's books that are condemned is that's generally a three uh fold tier? although other fathers are going to give different tiers than that uh, when they're making their canon list so books that are condemned those are heretical books don't read those do not read those and then there are going to be uh, certain books which are um which are approved and used in the church uh, used privately so uh, an example of this is going to be like the Shepherd of Hermas like sure read the Shepherd of Hermas that is a, um, a book which is approved for private use and then there's a second category in that which is going to be public liturgical books um, ecclesiastically um, and then those would be uh, those books that belong in the very scriptural canons of Orthodox churches. Um, so yeah yeah read them and there's canonical books which are going to give the uh, the binding. But you're going to have the binding power of our Lord, which those uh, those are the canonical books that we have uh, as given by the Council of Trent. Okay, so I'd say it's improper. The proper would be foster father of God. I don't know. I don't know, man. Um, we can speak of uh, depending on what you mean by father. If you're talking about a biological father, because father is taken in multiple senses. Um, for example, you call your priest father, but you wouldn't say it's an improper sense just because it's talking about spiritual fatherhood. You know, it would still be a proper sense um, of the use of father, because we have a more general um, we have a more general usage of father. For example, magistrates. Uh, and kings uh, historically have been called father. Father generally is speaking of somebody who has rule over another. This can come in multiple types. It can be a political fatherhood. It could be spiritual fatherhood. It could be um, it could be many different, many different cases. Um, so uh, in, in that sense, we could properly even call Joseph a father because of that a domestic rule that he had over over Jesus. So yeah, I guess, I guess. So maybe it may be a proper usage. Sorry, the wife. Okay. I can only answer a few more questions, but it looks like I'm here the bottom anyways. Okay, so if you could give five books you think that everyone should read, and only one book per author. What books would you give? Ooh, five books that ev- everyone. So I have to, I have to appeal to the masses. Though. So um, the first one is going to be. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to, um, try to curtail this to where it's like a general, general level playing field. The first one is going to be going through the fires of Jesus with Robert McKim. I'm just joking. Uh this book is actually kind of weird. So this is very difficult because there's so many things that I want people to be educated in. Um well obviously Oh no. No, no, no. Crap. This is this is a lot more difficult than I thought. I'm trying to think of a because the problem is finding books that everybody um, would be able to read and understand, but also not by um, repeated authors. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna find. I'm just gonna find uh, five manuals that are really good. Okay, let me look under. The first one is going to be Copins, A Systematic Study of the Christian Religion. The second one, is. Hmm. Oh, Rickaby wrote Rickaby wrote a good um, one on the cardinal virtues. It's a really good book. Um, to kind of an as an introduction to uh, virtue theology. So that's a good one. Um, third one is Clark's book on logic. Um, that's really necessary. Man, I'm already on three. Um The hard one is like, what? What can everybody read? Try to appeal to the masses here. Okay, so I got a good one on logic. I got one on ethics. Hmm. Okay, logic and ethics, I think, are honestly the most important. I got a dogmatic theology. Um, I think if this counts, I don't know if this counts, but I think a a really good work is going to be um, if you read the Dewey Reams Bible and like look at the notes. I don't know if that counts as a whole complete a different work is is the notes. Uh, I don't know if that counts. And then uh, the last one is going to be. Saint John of the Cross in his um ascent of Mount Carmel. This could be another one. But again it's it's super difficult because you asked me about everyone. You didn't ask me like like if you had like a level of education I could but I'm like okay I'm going to have to like give this book to farmers to read and force them to read it. Okay. What are your thoughts on what course of action should be taken against uh, Father James Martin S.J.? Oh, man. Well. So I'm going, I can't directly say this, but I'll indirectly say this. So I think we can all agree Father James Martin is a heretic. Now, the second principle is that according to St. Thomas Aquinas, because the death of the soul is greater than the death of the body, that heresy should be a capital offense. Therefore, um, in agreeing with the initial premise and in agreeing with the principle given by St. Thomas Aquinas, um, you can draw a certain conclusion for what I think should be done um, concerning uh, Father James Martin. Okay. And with that, um, I have to go, unfortunately. So sorry about all of you. I think there's a few of you where I wasn't able to answer your questions, but thank you for stopping by. Uh, I think I have something tomorrow. Oh yeah. I'm going to be reacting to a bunch of normies, try to talk about Thomism, So that shall be fun. So I will see you guys tomorrow and remember, is it still? No, it's Trinity Sunday. So remember, um, what, what should I say for Trinity Sunday? I'm trying to think of something to say for Trinity Sunday. Oh, we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity.